picking up here in Isaiah after all that's happened and uh, sort of in conjunction with uh, all that Roger has been doing on Sunday. Uh, He spoke, of course, this last Sunday on the comfort of God addressing the the various means by which God uh, comforts us and then, of course, how he equips us uh, to comfort others with the comfort with which he has comforted us. So he allows us to endure suffering, difficulty, adversity, uh, so that we can experience his comfort. And then uh, he makes us suitable instruments to be of, of, of benefit to others in their troubles. He comes alongside of us to help in time of need. And uh, I think the, the most valuable thing about suffering, uh, about troubles, is that you... Uh, are put in a position where you experience the nature and character of God in, in ways that otherwise you would never, uh, because he, um, you know, when things are uh, favorable, you don't need to experience his pity and his mercy. Uh, and so in order to experience those sides of his attributes, his character, um, it sort of requires that you go through trouble. And uh, those are the ways that we get to know God and his personality, his goodness. And um, yeah, he's never absent. He's always good. And he's always been that way for all of his people. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, in, in thinking of uh, my own troubles, thinking of other people's troubles, all of the troubles of late, uh, he never wants us to be alone. And he never wants us to wallow in our, our misery. Uh, in First Peter five seven, he he calls out to us to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. He's intimately aware and he's intimately involved in all that's happening in our lives. And um, so we come to Isaiah forty, and this chapter demonstrates that he didn't want the earlier promise of judgment, and so he calls the prophet Isaiah to speak truth to them that would comfort them. And all, most of the truth involved has to do with God's character and his attributes. And so he's reminding them of who God is, what he is like, what he does, so that they can be prepared for what's coming. So we, we left off in chapter 39 uh, with this word that was given from Isaiah to King Hezekiah uh, that was pertinent to all of Judah. It says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The city, the temple, everything will be laid waste. The people will be taken captive and even some of your sons will be taken, and tragically, they will be made eunuchs in the king's palace. So, not the best way to conclude a message, right? Uh, But that's what they were left with in chapter 39. Uh, But before the news of all of this would go out and crush the hopes of the people, uh, Isaiah is commissioned then to bring this, um, this message of hope to them. So without having you stand tonight because the chapter is long, I'm going to read it to you and then we'll, we'll pray together. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, 
Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked place places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor to be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, no one is missing or not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, 
My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, in, in consideration of this, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your attributes, the things that are true about you, your personality, Lord, the way that you behave toward us. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that all of this would become more evident to us, especially, Lord, in hindsight of all that's happened, Lord, and in preparation for all that will happen. Lord, help us to just draw close to you, to know our God, and uh, Lord, so that we can know what we might be able to endure when it comes our way. Thank you for your faithfulness. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, a long chapter. Let's go back to the beginning and uh, look over some of the details. Isaiah is commissioned to say to the people of Judea, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, we know by this time that the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, uh, has been dispersed among the nations by the Assyrians. And uh, all that was left was the southern uh, district, we might say, uh, of Judea, Jerusalem is its capital, and uh, they are um, bracing themselves for a similar judgment, though they will not be dispersed like the Assyrians did to those that they conquered. Um, they would be conquered by the Babylonians. And uh, so in anticipation of this, he says, God has Isaiah say to them, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God, speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, of course, this hasn't yet happened. That will all happen throughout their captivity. So they're going to pay for their rebellion in captivity. They're going to suffer uh, the just uh, desert for their sins, but God is going to bring them through it. Okay? So this is intended in advance to comfort Judea, okay? And we have to uh, kind of grab onto the Holy Spirit's intent here in verse one and two because this is going to be what we call the, the hermeneutic for the whole chapter. Uh, comforting his people is going to govern the way that we interpret the rest of the chapter. It's all intended to comfort. Looking forward to the end of the captivity and God's faithfulness to them through it all. Isn't that an interesting thought that God in his discipline of his people, uh, it, that's his faithfulness. But even as he disciplines them, he walks with them, he provides them, he shepherds them, and all of that. He is a good father, amen? He chastens all of the children that he loves. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, that is the lowest parts of the valley shall be brought up, and every mountain and hill brought low. So the idea is that it'll make 
all of the ground level. The crooked places will be straight and the rough places smooth. So the idea is that uh, anything that uh, hinders uh, ease of passage, all that will be cleared up. Uh, that's the intent of all of this. Uh, it's somewhat of a, a figure of speech. Uh, some scholars have said today we would say roll out the red carpet okay, for, for whatever God's purpose is in all of this. Now, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this voice is said to be the voice of who? Didn't sound very confident there. What did you say? John the Baptist, right. In fact, John himself said that, that he is the voice sp spoken of by Isaiah. Uh, he says that in John 1.23. Uh, but the truth of these verses, of course, they had ultimate application fulfillment in uh, prior to the life of Jesus there in John's ministry. Uh, but there has to be some uh, application in the immediate context where we're going to be uh, about 600 years before Christ is born. Uh, and the statement is interesting. So when we come to some of these uh, prophecies like this, it, it's kind of like a, a soft fulfillment and then a hard fulfillment or a, a partial fulfillment and then the, the total fulfillment of them. I haven't actually worked out how all of this works uh, in my head. Do you guys have things like that from the scriptures as well? Please say yes. It makes me feel a little more affirmed in my insufficiencies. So, uh, but remember, the message is always whose message? It's God's message. And so he can use as many messengers or instruments as he pleases to communicate his message, right? Yes, okay. Uh, here, it's initially coming through Isaiah, right? Initially it is, okay. Then it's eventually going to come through Daniel and Ezekiel, okay, during the captivity and toward the end of the captivity. And then it's going to come through whom Jesus calls the greatest prophet that has ever lived. That will be John the Baptist. And it actually should continue through all of us until the gospel is preached to absolutely everyone, okay? The message that every barrier, okay, that every barrier should be removed in order to enable God's work in someone's life, that should always be preached. And, and that message that, you know, John came speaking as that voice and using this figure of speech, but there was one particular word that he used that was meant to prepare the way of the Lord. That is, in the human heart. What word is that? Repent. That's right. It's repentance that, you know, just drops and removes all of the barriers so that God can actually work in the human heart. This is true in, in, in every circumstance of human life. We're just so bent on rebellion. We're so resistant to God, uh, whether it's in marital issues, relationships, or just obedience. Repentance is what neutralizes all that stuff, and then God is able to work through our life. And so, repentance. And when God is satisfied with the preaching of repentance in the world, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love that. The, these verses take us from the ministry of Isaiah to the second coming of Christ when every eye sees him. Okay? And the event is absolutely unstoppable. 
I love that. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is, the second coming of Christ is a decree of God. Now, not everything in the scriptures that God says is a decree. This one is. Christ will come as decreed of God. None of his decrees can be altered. Okay? It will happen. It will happen. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So this prophecy was conveyed to Isaiah by this voice, okay, which is probably coming from the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah is the messenger to Israel. And his message was this, basically, uh, the life of man here on earth is transient. It's, it's temporal. But the word of God, like the God of the word, is permanent and eternal. So God is trying to communicate to them right off the bat the, this vast difference between man and God. Okay? Jesus said that even the heavens and the earth are temporal and transient. But his word, which is the word of God, and Christ is the God of the word, shall never pass away, Mark 13, 31. So because God endures forever, he can forever ensure that his promises come to pass. Nothing that he says will ever fall to the ground. So the promise isn't yet, he hasn't spoken it yet in the prophecy, but he's going to, okay? And he's, he's reminding them at the very beginning that whatever goes out as God's word is solid, okay? And God in his, his sovereignty can ensure that all of his promises come to pass. The word of God stands forever. He says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So Israel will return to their high mountain, which is, of course, a reference to the Temple Mount, where they would once again worship and rejoice in God's presence, which is about to be put on hold for 70 years, right? Jeremiah tells us that the captivity in Babylon will be for 70 years, but they will return to their city, to their temple, to the worship, their way of life, and the rest. How many of you guys have endured a 70-year trial? Could you imagine having that announced to you that the next 70 years of your life would be in captivity? It would be a test of faith, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. And <clears throat> he says, uh, do not be afraid, that is, to, to, to give this proclamation. Now, during difficult times, when, when all hope seems to be lost, like during 70 years of captivity, there can be a reluctance to proclaim the goodness of God. I mean, how many uh, friends have you sat with who are going through terrible stuff? And everything in you wants to say, God is good. But then something else in you says, but I might be a little uncertain of that considering the, circum the, the circumstances. Amen? We well, hear God is saying, no, no, no. Nothing has changed about my goodness. Nothing has changed about my abilities or whatever. He says, declare it. Don't be afraid. Declare it. Tell them to look to God. Tell them that. It's nothing, 
No circumstance that can change God's goodness or any part of his nature should always bring good tidings in the midst of heartache and everything else. He always works in our circumstances. He takes all of the unpleasant um, issues of life and he works them together for good. Romans 8.28. So proclaim always the goodness of God no matter what happens. He says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Does that sound intimate? It does, doesn't it? The the care of a shepherd who carries the, the lamb on his shoulder, who gathers them, who carries them, who gently leads them. It's all very intimate. As we move on here, uh, Isaiah is going to quickly kind of elevate um, God's character here. So we would say just as our uh, miserable circumstances do not change the goodness of God, they do not weaken God or diminish his ability to bring our lives to his intended end. Okay, never stops shepherding regardless of what happens. Most often, instead of, you know, delivering us from terrible circumstances, what does he do? He lets us go through them, but he shepherds us in the process, right? He leads us through them. He gives us strength to endure them. Even, and this is the crazy thing, if our circumstances were brought on by our own sin, and that's the case for Judah, okay? So now, from here on, the rest of the chapter continues with a series of rhetorical questions. Um, Some of them are answered, but most of them are not. The question and answers are are meant to to elevate the magnitude of God's attributes versus the smallness of man, okay? A man is not sufficient for the trials of this life, but God transcends all of it. So he begins here. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Sounds a lot like when God was speaking with Job measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Very interesting. So what's being emphasized here about God is uh, what we call his omniscience. Omni means all, science means knowledge. So God's, uh, the fact that he possesses all knowledge. And here he possesses all knowledge about the physical universe. It's volume, it's height, length, depth, weight. Everything is known to him. Now, with all of our collective knowledge, as we stand on the shoulders of generation after generation, all of our technology, we will never know a fraction of what God knows, right? Nothing. And see, the thing about us is we grow in knowledge, Hopefully, we're growing in knowledge. God doesn't even have the ability to grow in knowledge. He already knows everything. He can never know more than he does, and he'll never know less than he does. He possesses all knowledge now, and he does eternally. We are growing in knowledge. He does not. Okay? For Judah, <clears throat> Judea, there are countless unknowns about the coming judgment. And Honestly, oftentimes it's the unknown things that concern us most, right? There's a principle in jujitsu that when you put someone in a restraint, um, they don't know how bad it can be, and so that's why they tap out, they give up. Because you just apply a little more pressure, 
and it hurts more, but they don't know how bad it can hurt, so they give up. Did you know that? It's a beautiful thing when you're grappling with people. Okay. It's the unknown that, that scares us, but for God, it is all known, as well as the outcome, the beginning of all things to the very end, including everything in between is known by him, and he is the one that is looking after his people. He goes on, he says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So here, it's not an emphasis simply on the knowledge of God, but it's his wisdom, not omniscience, uh, but the word here is actually omnisophient. Uh, Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. So he possesses all wisdom, okay? God doesn't just know all that will happen to Judah in Babylon. He knows what he is doing by imposing this judgment upon them. By his wisdom, he understands how to accomplish what is best for his people. He knows the best means to accomplish the best results for his rebellious ones, okay? God is going to send them to Babylon to cure them of idolatry, essentially. And that's what he, he will accomplish. And he says, behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. And now Isaiah is focusing in on God's infinitude. C compared to God, all nations, he says, are like a, a drop in a bucket of water. The moment that the drop hits the surface of the water, what happens to it? It's just gone. It's just gone. He says the nations are like fine dust that has settled on the scales, which cannot be detected. The dust is so small, so unconcerning, that the person weighing his goods doesn't even bother blowing it off. It's just that insignificant. And he says, all of the vast forests of Lebanon, you know, the cedars of Lebanon, he says, and all the beasts in them, it's not sufficient to bring an offering to the worth of God, the value of God. What Judah is coming up against with the Babylonians, it's just nothing for God. He says, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? So the greatest empires of the world, which seem so intimidating and impressive to us, God says they're less than nothing to me, less than nothing, worthless in my sight. So therefore, in view of the magnitude of God, he says, what will you compare me to? What likeness will you give? That is, what idol could you fashion that would do justice to all that I am? Okay. He says, the workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot, a cedar. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter, it won't fall over. Yeah, so to fashion an idol with hopes of representing the God of creation is just completely insulting. He says, have you not known, have you not heard, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? So in other words, God's people from Adam until now, they should know 
Because prior to this, it's been revealed to them, but nonetheless, they still, they made their idols, didn't they? They did, for which God is going to judge them. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Interesting verse. The Hebrew word for circle is kug. It's the Hebrew word for a sphere. That's very interesting, don't you think? Speaking of the the curvature of the earth, uh, some people say that this curvature can be be, uh, identifiable at sea. Now, I've been at sea. I couldn't see it. I was intentionally looking for it. It was just flat to me, okay? Have you guys ever seen a place on earth where you can actually see the curvature? You have? Where were you when you saw it? You were on a boat. Oh, okay. I was on a big boat too. Yeah, I didn't see it. Oh, the 14th floor. Okay. I'll remember that next time I go out. Yeah, so. You know, the interesting thing about the Jews is they were not seafaring people. Yeah. And so Isaiah, it's very unlikely that he would have a personal experience of observing um, that phenomenon. Yeah, sort of. He was a a large fish-faring person, yeah. Isaiah is saying what has been revealed to him. He knows nothing about the earth in in these terms, but this is what God, who created the earth, is telling him. Uh, Job, you know, interesting enough, he he talks about the earth uh, being in a free float in space, Uh, Job 26, 7, saying that God has hung the earth upon nothing. So Isaiah calls it a sphere, and Job says that it, it is suspended in space by nothing at all. Uh, it seems to uh, predate our discoveries by hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, people should have just read their Bibles. But the science is not the point. There's another reference here, too, that is important. In the verse, it says it stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out. We know that space is expanding. That's more of a recent discovery as well, and it explains a lot of the, the things in, in uh, science for us. Uh, but the, the science is not the point in the passage. Really, it's God's sovereignty and his management and control of the heavens. He stretches them. I mean, think of the magnitude of the heavens and all that's in them, and God is stretching them. He's spreading them. They are his to do with as he pleases. But God doesn't just manage the affairs of the heavens. He also sovereignly deals with the affairs of the inhabitants of earth. He brings the princes to nothing, these these rulers of these massive empires. He brings their princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. The rulers of this world have the illusion that they rule, but above them and over their dominion, God rules supremely. Those all earthly rulers stand or fall by God's bidding. He ordains their rise to power and he humbles them when he's done with them. It's amazing. And if God rules over the kingdom's and the kings of men, and if he rules over the heavens, do you think that he can rule in our individual trials and lives? That's the communication here. If he is the sovereign of the universe, 
If he's the sovereign over kings and kingdoms, he can definitely be sovereign over our lives, even when difficulty strikes. He says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. So the point here is just God's absolute uniqueness. He's one of a kind. There's nothing like him. Uh, Things can share a likeness to him, but the distance between God and all that he created is, is infinite. It's infinite. He was not created. He has no beginning. Everything else was created and has origin. The difference between God and creation is just, it's crazy. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. So look to the heavens. He says, who brings out their hosts, that's stars, by number. He calls them all by name. How many stars do they estimate now are in in space? Just crazy. He calls them by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. So the reason that God can sovereignly manage the universe and everything in it is due to his, his ultimate power, his, his omnipotence, that he possesses all power. So any power that is in the universe has been lent by him. It's borrowed, okay? He didn't just create everything by his mighty power. Scripture says that he sustains everything and he keeps it in existence. He has to willfully maintain its existence. He is independent of all things while everything else depends on him. Now, the word create comes from the Hebrew word bara. Bara. Now, God alone is the subject of that verb, that Hebrew verb. The reason for it is that When he creates, he creates from nothing. He creates from nothing. He doesn't use, you know, like us, we use existing materials in order to make things. He uses nothing. He wills things into existence out from absolutely nothing at all. It has been thought of uh, by the ancient Greeks. Um, Even today, the LDS, LDS theology, says that matter is eternal. Matter is eternal. It's not eternal. It cannot be eternal. If it were, it would have already been depleted of its usable energy. And it most certainly has not been depleted yet. All matter came into existence by the will of God. And when he created it, he he instilled in it a certain amount of usable energy, right? We're using it all the time. And if he allows time to continue long enough, all matter would be useless and the universe would just die. Thankfully, he will return before that occurs. And it would take a very, very long time to diminish all of the usable energy in the world. Be that as it may, this all-powerful God is the God who is currently overseeing Judea, and he's shepherding them at that time, and he will be through their troubles. And so he says to them, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. So God is basically saying to his people, why do you say that I don't see your troubles? Why do you say such a thing or say that I'm I'm too preoccupied to notice? Have you guys said that or thought that in your troubles? God, are you not paying attention? What's going on here? I thought you were good. I thought, I thought, I thought, where are you? What's happening? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He doesn't sleep and he knows everything. Nothing passes in our lives that goes unnoticed by him. He sees all, hears all, knows all, 
and his knowledge of us is one of concern. Excuse me. He's mindful of us. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Notice the implication here. It does not say that he keeps us from all trouble. It doesn't say that or steers us from all harm or makes everything in life pleasant. No, he gives strength for life's unpleasantries. But there's a condition for receiving his strength. He says, even the youths shall faint and be weary. So even in all of their strength and youthfulness, they will faint and be weary. And the young men shall, be, shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In difficult times, as Isaiah is saying to Judea, difficult times like the Babylonian captivity, even those who are strongest among us will eventually experience fatigue and their strength will utterly fail. But those, in spite of their physical infirmity, their age or whatever, if they wait on the Lord, if they trust him, relying upon him, will have strength renewed. If they rely upon him, he will be their source of endurance, okay? That will be enough for any trial, even if that trial lasts for 70 years, as it did for Judah. Now, Judah was deserving of the troubles that, that were coming upon them. I mean, when you go through the list that God accuses them of, it's massive. I'll just give you four. That God accuses them of disregarding the covenant. It says they sacrifice to idols. They, they even burn their children to Molech, a, a demon idol, and they profane God's feasts and his Sabbaths. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, there was to be the year of rest for the land, where they never did that, and they actually owed God 70 years worth. So guess how many they paid? 70. The land got rest for 70 years. It's, it's, it spewed them out so that it could get rest. But in spite of their rebellion, in spite of all their evil, God promised, I will be with you, but you must wait on me. So a question that I think we have to ask, this was given uh, about 100 years before the Babylonian exile. How do we know that God kept his promise to be with them through all of it? I mean, we know that he brought them back, but how do we know, what evidence do we have that he was with them through it? What'd you say? A whole book of the Bible was written on it, the book of Daniel. So if you read the book of Daniel, you, you see God's faithfulness to him and to his three companions, right? Chapter one, they're sort of being forced to eat from the king's delicacies, which is unclean food ceremonially. And it was also offered to an idol. And so Daniel said, ain't doing it. And the, the eunuch said, you'll die if you don't. He says, ain't doing it. And his three companions said, we're not doing it either. And so <clears throat> they said, well, let us, let us just eat vegetables and water and see how we fare in this whole thing. And he said, okay, we'll give it a try. And through the end of the trial, it, it says they were fatter in face than the other boys. I'm not really sure what that means exactly, but they looked better than the other boys in captivity. And then as soon as problems arose with uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill all of the the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, all those people. And Daniel said, hold the phone, let us pray. So he, he was the first 
youth meeting in Scripture, and him and the three friends, they were probably between 12 and 16, they got together and prayed, and, then, and God met them where they were. So we see that from the, the first couple years that they were there until toward the end of the 70 years, Daniel must have been in his 80s or 90s, that God walked with him through all of that. So God promised in Isaiah 40, God fulfilled throughout the book of Daniel, and then post-exilic, we see God bring the people back to the land, they rebuild their city and their walls, their temple, and worship begins again. We know that God kept his word, kept his promise. And the amazing thing about him keeping his promise was it's the only time in history where nations held in captivity were just let go back to their country. And it was done by Cyrus. It's very interesting. It's crazy. So for Judah, difficulty was coming. Pain was on the horizon, as it is always for us, isn't it? We are really, honestly, just waiting for the next thing. Adversity ebbs and flows. It comes and goes at different degrees. And only God's word and the comfort of his spirit can prepare us, okay, and shepherd us through it. We need him. But there is this interesting thing that happens, which I think is very um, important in, in light of Isaiah 40. When life is hard, we have a tendency to grant divine attributes to our troubles, as if the powers of God are in our troubles. And we think that we just cannot get away from them. They're more powerful than us. There's just, there's just no way out. We, we look at them as, as though they do possess all power. Okay? They rob us of joy and of confidence. They seem to find us wherever we're at as, as though our, our troubles are omniscient. And they so effectively torture us that we attribute cunning to that. It's very strange. Our troubles control our lives as though they're sovereign. I know that because I've been through enough troubles of my own. I've worked with enough people and walked alongside them through theirs. We're quick to lose hope. We're quick to attribute to our troubles things we would normally only say are true about God. And our troubles can seem more real to us than God seems real to us bigger than God, more powerful than him. But really, I think that we have to wake up sometimes. We have to be shaken in the midst of our troubles. And we have to really repent of, I mean, it's kind of a sick idolatry, isn't it? To attribute those things to our troubles. And we have to remember who God is, how he behaves, and what he's promised. We can't let, as we often see, our emotions hijack our understanding of God and his word and then blind us from the truth. So here in this chapter, and I think it's good for us too, the Holy Spirit is preemptively trying to theologically kind of talk sense to the people by revealing God's moral and his metaphysical attributes. We covered his sovereignty, his goodness, his worthiness, his omniscience, that he's all wise, his infinitude, his transcendence, his omnipotence, his his perpetual concern for his people, that he's always distributing strength for those who wait on him. Since he is all these things infinitely, and because he does all of these things faithfully, all of his people, everywhere they are found, and in all of their circumstances, they can depend on him, and he will bring them to his intended end. They're not going to escape the troubles of this life or the troubles, uh, the sorrows that go with it, but he's going to see them through it, and they will ultimately awaken in his presence. You know, think about it this way. God 
created the stars, and you guys realize how big some of the stars are, right? I mean, Canis Majoris, the largest star that we know of, if you're able to see it in full view, you cannot see our sun next to it. And when you put Earth next to our sun, you can hardly see it, okay? So Canis Majoris, it means big dog. It's, it's, it's so amazing. God created it, and he keeps it in existence. And all of the others, same with all the other stars, he created them, he placed them where they are, and he set them on their course. He maintains their circuit. If he can manage the stars, he can manage our destiny, right? He can. Since he is infinitely good, his goodness to us cannot be exhausted. He's infinitely worthy. And so in spite of what happens, he should always be worshiped. Since he's omniscient, he knows every detail because he possesses all wisdom. He knows the best way to see me through my troubles. I don't. I can walk beside you and I can pray for you and encourage you, but I can make a lot of mistakes on, along the way. He cannot make a mistake. Okay? Because of his character, he will grant us the necessary grace to walk through anything. God kept his word to Judah. He loved them and he provided for them in captivity. Then he brought them back to Jerusalem, restored freedom, their city, their worship, their way of life. If he knew in advance and controlled all of the details beyond 70 years, I think that he can kind of manage things for us. Yeah, we wait on him. We put our trust in him. He's always good.